In our text, there are two groups of people that come to Jesus. If you uh, are just reading through this passage, you might miss that off the top. In the opening verses, there are two different groups. The first group is a big group. Many people come to Jesus, and Matthew tells us why. They came to Jesus to follow him. But the interaction that we read mostly of here is those who came to Jesus to test him. Those two groups came for different reasons, with different intentions in their heart, with different heart postures, and they received two different responses from Jesus. Those who came to him to test him were rebuked by him in his answer, but those who came to him to follow him, to learn from him, received healing from him. It really matters how you come to Jesus. As we come to this text this morning, what is for us a hard text, a confrontational text that meets us, it flies in the face of so much of our experience as humans in a fallen world, it's important to ask the question, how are you coming to Jesus this morning? How are you hearing Jesus this morning? He is going to talk to us about your singleness or your marriage, your marriage or your divorce, your divorce or your remarriage. We need to ask, how is your heart as you come to Jesus? Because we're all pretty invested on this topic, aren't we? As I was reflecting on the sermon last week, the passage that Jesus taught last week, one of the conversations I had with a few of you was, it's hard to engage in the passage about forgiveness and take it on its own terms without immediately thinking of our own situations and the specific things that we're facing and the specific people that we know we have a hard time forgiving. And immediately in our minds, we're transported into that situation. And I dare say, if that's true with forgiveness, it's equally true with divorce and marriage and singleness. See, the Pharisees wanted to make this a theological test for Jesus. They wanted him to jump through hoops and to come to a conclusion that either they agreed with or that they disagreed with so that they could have a fight with him about it. But when it comes right down to it, what Jesus is acknowledging and teaching is that this is not simply theological hoops to jump through. And we know that intuitively, don't we? As soon as we start talking about divorce, when it is permissible, what about remarriage? What about singleness and celibacy? Immediately, situations start to come into our mind. All the what-ifs, all the people that we know, our own situations. Maybe it is you, and you have had a hard marriage, and you have thought much about divorce. Maybe you have been divorced, and you think wrongfully. Maybe you have been abandoned, and you're wondering about divorce. Maybe it's a situation your children have found themselves in. Your son or your daughter is now divorced or on the brink of divorce, and you don't know what to think about it or what to do about it. Maybe for some of you, it's your parents who were divorced, and you bore the weight of that through your childhood and experience the consequences of it even now. Maybe it's just the fact that you're still single, and you wonder if somehow this is God's second best for you. No matter where you land on this whole spectrum, the reality is that as soon as we broach this topic, we are walking in sensitive 
territory. This is not a matter for theological debate primarily. It is a pastoral concern for Jesus. And so what Jesus wants to do, if we come to him, if we come to him as those who don't want to test him, who don't want to fight against him, but those who want to follow him, we want to learn from him, he will give us healing as we learn from his teaching this morning. If we come humbly, Jesus will heal. He brings healing to our whole selves. The way we're going to see him do that this morning is by thinking about our, our head and our heart and our hands. That is, Jesus cares about how we think about divorce and remarriage. Jesus cares about how we feel, what we long for with divorce and remarriage. And he cares about what we do, what our hands find to actually do, what decisions we make and how we live and how all of this really is a high calling from Jesus to live for his kingdom with our marriage or our singleness. The best way to get at that healing that we need is to dive into the teaching of Jesus who wants to address, first of all, your head, how to think about marriage and divorce. So the Pharisees in verse 3 come to him. They come up to him. and In the original, it's a deliberate statement. They come up to him in order to test him. They want to test him, and they're going to do that by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This was the standard teaching of the day. If a man has a reason to find something unclean, something unpleasing in his wife, he finds that he may now divorce her for any cause. So they taught. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning. Jesus is going to use that phrase a couple times. It's really important. From the beginning, he made them male and female. It's a strange place to start, right? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus, Jesus wants us to think about how we think when we come to these issues. And this is worth taking a few moments to ponder, to consider here even now, because this is the kind of situation that comes up not infrequently as you have theological conversations with people who want to argue for strange things. So I wonder if you've ever run into someone, as I have, who has argued for polygamy being acceptable because, well, King David, or, you know, you take your pick of the Old Testament so-called heroes, and they had multiple wives. There's allowances in the Old Testament laws for how you're to treat your second wife or your third wife. What about slavery? We can argue that slavery is somehow okay because God regulates it in the Old Covenant. So therefore, if we have a text, the behavior must now be allowed also for us. And we intuitively know that that's wrong, right? We understand it feels like they're twisting something. It feels like they're bending something to try to accomplish their own purpose, to get what they want out of this situation. But sometimes it's hard to actually put our finger on what is it that they're doing that's wrong. It's that type of thinking that Jesus wants to help us think about, to address, to confront in this passage. So Pharisees have a text They've picked the text, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, 
because he has found some indecency in her, and that's the phrase, some indecency that he finds in her, that's the phrase that they go hog wild with, because then, hey, some indecency, we can make that mean whatever we want so that we have any cause to divorce her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Now, you see, you understand what's happening in Deuteronomy 24, is, is Moses is describing a scenario in which the husband is determined to divorce the wife, and now he's giving a prescription for how to make sure it's officially done so that the wife may be cared for, that is, she may be allowed to be remarried and provided for in her second marriage and not passed around between men like an object. But they see in this an allowance for divorce that then becomes a command to divorce in their minds, if they find some indecency in her. Now, I, I don't know what else sandbags are used for. I've, I've only ever seen sandbags used in floods. You know, if you've ever seen images of like the prairies in the flood seasons when the waters are rising and, and, and you see before the floods come, everyone's putting out their sandbags or piling them up as high as they can outside of their houses. Why are they doing that? Because they know that the storm waters are coming. They're rushing. And so the sandbags are there to try to stop the overflow of the water that is bringing disaster from getting in and doing more damage to the houses. What God's doing with his law in places like Deuteronomy 24 is he's acknowledging simply that there is a rushing of water, the growing of sin, the onslaught of sin, and he is allowing sandbags to, to, to stop the flow of the water from doing more damage, the flow of the direction of sin. Now, what they're doing, though, is they're arguing that just because sandbags are there, therefore, somehow it must be okay for us to allow the flooding. This is ridiculous, and Jesus wants to address it. So he says, don't, don't start with where there's already a problem. Let's go back all the way to the beginning. What did God do in the beginning? He made them, Jesus says, male and female. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 1 when God creates man in his image and says, here's what it means for humanity to be in my image and my likeness. It means, at least in part, that they will be both male and female, distinct Yet both together functioning as my representatives on earth. Part of what it means for them to be male and female, part of what God has on his heart, on his mind when he makes them male and female, is that they would be married. So he says he makes them male and female in his image and likeness to fill, to, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. The very design of humanity as male and female is bound up with husband and wife coming together and being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. So Jesus draws out that implication by quoting again, this time from Genesis 2. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, cling to her, and the two of them shall become one flesh. From one generation to another, a new household, a new generation is established. The two become one. The language is graphic. It, it, it's, it's a gluing. It's a welding. It's a binding together of the two so that they are now one. And 
Jesus is clear. This is what God had in mind when he created, that the two would be bound together as one. Therefore, what God makes one, when he made them male and female, when he says come together as one, when he takes the two and makes them one, man must not separate. That's what God wanted in Genesis 1 and 2. A long time before the floodwaters of sin and the sandbags of Deuteronomy 24. So do you think that kind of thinking, of going back to the beginning, of looking at the original design before sin came in, do you think that now has some ramifications for us if we're going to have a conversation about polygamy, if we're going to have a conversation about homosexuality, if we're going to have a conversation about whatever image or whatever issue it is that you want to talk about? Absolutely. It is crucial for Christians to understand that if we want to know God's heart, God's mind, how to consider these things as categories, go back before sin to Genesis 1 and 2. This is how Jesus wants us to think about this. But the reality is that Deuteronomy 24 does exist. And the Pharisees want to know why. They say, why then did Moses command a man to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus' answer is going to be your heart. Your heart, which is far from God. Here's the second heading. Your heart. Here's how to feel about marriage and divorce, which is, which is to say, what are we supposed to long for? What are we supposed to desire? What is it that we're supposed to be after? Because what's clear is the Pharisees are after easy divorce. They want to be able to get out of an uncomfortable situation that they don't like, and so they're looking for a way out to do it so-called righteously. But Jesus wants to deal with their heart. So verse 8, he said to them, here's why. It's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But again, from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus draws us again back to the beginning, not simply for how to think about things, but for how to feel about things, what to long for, what to desire. This is, this is good for us to think about for a minute, especially for those of you who are particularly creative in your personalities. You love to create. You love to make beautiful things or functional things or functional things that are beautiful. Whatever it is that you love to create. Imagine if you had a, a truly blank slate with limitless resources. The sky is not even the limit. You can make whatever you want and you can spend as much time as you want and you can labor until at the end of the day, you stand back and say, that is good. You know that precious feeling? If you're a creative person, you, you, it's, it's so hard to get there, right? Because you can always identify the faults and what it is that you're trying to make. But imagine you could make something that, that the sum of all the parts, the way everything worked together, all of it was beautiful, and you could look at it and say, that is good and rejoice in it. You know what that thing is? It is pleasing to your heart. It's a reflection of your heart. What comes out of you when there's no constraints at all shows you what is inside of you. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying about creation. God was not bound to make male and female the way that he did. He was not bound to create marriage. There was no marriage. He came up with the idea of male and female to represent him. This, from eternity past, was what was on his heart. This is what he wanted to make so that the two of them would become one flesh as a representation of him. This is his heart. Verse 9, 
But why does divorce exist? Jesus says, because of your heart. See the contrast? The heart of God versus the heart of man. Where's the hardness of heart? Well, it might be on the side of the one who's pursuing divorce. Certainly, that was largely the case with the Pharisees. I I found out something that I don't like about my wife, and so I want to get rid of her, and I want to do it in a way that everyone will think I'm righteous and godly. I want to get out of something hard. I don't want to die to myself. I found someone that I like better. Jesus says this is hardness of heart that leads to you doing the opposite of God's heart. But the hardness of heart might be on the side of the one who is being divorced as well. In other words, if I become an abusive husband and my wife divorces me, she, by divorcing me, is not hard of heart. It was my hardness of heart, my sin, that led to this situation that now brings about the necessity of divorce. The fact that we're here at all, even talking about these things, the fact that Deuteronomy 24 needs to exist and this passage needs to exist, Jesus says, highlights the contrast between your heart and God's heart. This was God's heart in creation. Of all people, Christians ought to know this is not just God's heart in creation. It's God's heart in redemption as well. Where Jesus Christ, in love for those who had rebelled against him, those who had hated him, those who had lived in outright rebellion, rejecting his laws, rejecting his ways, hating him, living for ourselves, going our way, being unfaithful continually. He laid down his life. He came and sought us. He moved towards us. He won us through his death on the cross, through his resurrection love. He won us. He wooed us. He brought us to himself. And it's his persistent love. If you're a believer, you know this. It's his persistent love with us as individuals and with the church through all generations and all of our stupidity. It's his persistent love that has bound us to him so that he will not let us go. The church will be built. The bride of Christ will not be lost because this is the heart of our God. It is a heart of steadfast love and faithfulness. It is a heart of hard covenant keeping even when the other partner is unfaithful. This is the heart of our God. Jesus wants to draw this out for us. Did you know, in in verse 3, did you notice they asked the question right at the beginning, can we divorce for any cause? And now we're all the way through verse 8, and Jesus still has not answered their question. Most of us, if someone asks us a question, we'll just be like, okay, and we'll just dive right in with an answer. Jesus is taking five, six verses to even get around to it because he wants to take time. To address how you're thinking about this. Are you reading the scriptures rightly? He wants to take time to address your heart. Where's your heart at? If your heart is simply hard. If it just wants to get out of a hard situation. If you don't want to forgive. If you just think you found something better. Jesus wants to show you that your heart is the problem. We need to know his heart which longs for reconciliation and oneness, for steadfast love and faithfulness. 
He's addressed our head. He's addressed our heart. But he does finally, at the end of the day, he has to get to our hand. What is it that we are supposed to do? What are we supposed to do about marriage and divorce in this fallen world where hardness of heart is a thing? Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality... It's an interesting word. The Greek word there is is porneia. We're going to talk about that a little bit. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, leave out the exception clause for a minute to understand the logic. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. The basic logic is if you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery. So, So the logic goes something like this. If you divorce, it does not break your marriage covenant such that marrying another is a sinful act of adultery. So divorcing and remarrying is to commit adultery. And make no mistake, remarrying was the purpose of divorce. So you can go back and, and actually look. The divorce certificates, we, we have these. It's, it's, I mean, I want to say it's kind of cool in a geeky way. It's not kind of cool because it means people were divorced. But, but one of the things that you can see on the marriage certificates from the first century in, in Jewish culture was simply that it, it, it said right on there, you are free to marry any man. Sometimes it would be qualified any man, any Israelite man, any Jewish man, something along those lines. But it would say explicitly, you are free to marry any man because it is understood if you are divorced, you may remarry. So Jesus assumes this in his logic, saying that if you divorce and remarry, you are committing adultery. Now, now here's the clause, except, this logic holds true, except in the case of porneia. Except in the case where the covenant has been broken by something else. You, you can't rely on divorce to break the covenant. Divorce is merely an acknowledgement, a ratification of the reality that the covenant has already been broken or abandoned. So so marriage is a covenant with two-way commitments. You enter into a covenant making commitments to one another. And sometimes we overthink this a little bit. At least I know I do. If, If all of a sudden one month Rogers decided to cut me off from like a cell phone, and, and I was complaining to you, and you were like, well, did you pay your bill? And I said, well, no, I haven't paid it in like six months. You'd be like, well, you're an idiot. You haven't fulfilled your side of the obligations, so why would you now put it on them to fulfill their side? It is a two-way commitment, and the same is true here as Jesus describes marriage and divorce. So that means that we really need to understand what does Jesus mean when he says, except for porneia, except for sexual immorality. Some translations uh, translate this as adultery. I think that's a poor translation, not because adultery is not intended, but because adultery is not the only thing intended. In other words, there's a different word that Jesus would have used if he wanted to simply describe adultery. The word that he uses has different ramifications. It's much broader. It's much bigger. It encompasses much more. So I think we should understand Jesus' use of this word in a similar way to how we understand, say, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he says to them, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit? Do you think the Apostle Paul cares if you get drunk with rum? 
or beer or vodka or if he smoked marijuana, of course he does. We understand he's using one term as representative for a group, for a range of sins. And we understand the same thing here with Jesus. Moises Silva commenting on this passage, he's a New Testament scholar, he writes this about the use of this word. There are numerous passages where in imitation of the Hebrew, so remember, this in Matthew is being recorded for us in Greek, but the people who would be, the Jewish people would have spoken Hebrew. So the original Old Testament would have been written in Hebrew, New Testament being written in Greek. So the word pornuo, the verb form here that's being used, Silva is saying this is an imitation of the Hebrew and it's used figuratively of unfaithfulness to God who is portrayed as a husband to Israel. It is, it is thus not primarily the sexual intercourse that shocks the prophets, but the absolute lack of personal faithfulness, of covenantal faithfulness, of faithfulness to their God with whom they are supposed to be in covenant. It's a representative term that, des that describes a wayward life, a heart that has abandoned a covenant. So what does this covenantal infidelity look like? What, is it, what does it look like to abandon the covenant in such a way that it has been broken so that the other person may leave? Well, we're given another clue in Exodus chapter 21. Again, another sandbag text curbing the effects of sin. Exodus 21 and verse 10, describing in a case of polygamy, if he, the man, takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her, the first wife's, food, clothing, or her marital rights. There's provision, there's protection, and there's procreation, all of which we can see tracing all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 as well in the establishing of a house where the two become one flesh. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is, this is remarkable in that context, in that ancient Near Eastern context, that a woman would be free from her obligations to her husband if her husband does not provide, protect, and give her her conjugal rights. The basic pattern that Moses is establishing is that a woman would be protected from being abused or abandoned. She's provided for, she's to be kept safe and clothed and given her conjugal rights, the opportunity to become a mother. If these things were not provided, she had the right to leave. This, this is the basic understanding of the word for sexual immorality that I think makes the most sense out of the whole New Testament's teaching on divorce. So take, for example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, who, who famously allows for divorce and remarriage in cases of abandonment where one spouse leaves why? Because if you leave, you cannot be physically with the person to give them their conjugal rights. You cannot provide for them. You cannot protect them. You have fundamentally abandoned your covenantal obligations. So we see this with adultery, certainly. We see this with abandonment, and I would argue that we see it with abuse as well, where we are covenanted to protect, but instead we bring harm. 
The case that Jesus is describing is one where you have entered into a covenant. You have fundamentally failed. You've been unfaithful to fulfill your covenantal obligations. You have been wayward in your heart. And the other person can now recognize that the covenant has been broken such that it may be ratified by pursuing divorce. As Israel was unfaithful to God, and God called it whoredom and sexual immorality, so also you being unfaithful in your marriage covenantal obligations to your spouse may likewise be referred to as whoredom or immorality, even of heart. You know how remarkable this is, what Jesus has done in this passage? He's addressing the Pharisees for whom divorce was easy and expected. It's a power move, right? Only the men at this point can divorce the women. The women don't have rights to divorce the men. And it's expected. They say, hey, it's a command that Moses has given to us. It is, it is the righteous thing to do to divorce this unclean woman when I find something unclean in her. They would have all kinds of examples of things that you could find in your wife, whether it's adultery or bad cooking. One rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, said, hey, if you find a woman that's better looking than your wife and obviously there's something unclean in your wife so you can divorce her and they put this in the category of commands from Moses Jesus has managed to flip this whole conversation on its head he said your heart is in the wrong place and that shows in the fact that you're thinking about all of these things wrongly you can't even read the Bible rightly on these things and in fact rather than talking about how you can get out let's talk about how you have fundamentally failed in the first place to keep your covenantal obligations to your spouse Jesus turns it around on them but nevertheless divorce is permitted in cases of covenantal infidelity such as adultery and abandonment and abuse. It is not commanded, but it is permissible. You notice the difference in language? In verse 7, they said, why did Moses command us then? You're going against Moses. Moses gave us a command to divorce our wives. And in verse 8, Jesus says, no, Moses permitted. Moses allowed this. He allowed it because of your hardness of heart, but this was never a command. But this brings us to an important point. When we think about the culture, when we think about the community of our church, how we relate to each other, if divorce is permissible, then we must allow it to actually be permissible in our community, without side eyes, without casting shade, without looking down on, without disdaining in our hearts, if it does happen, if it is permissible, it is permissible. Jim Neuheiser in his book on divorce and remarriage writes this. It's a longer quote, but it helps tease out some of the ramifications for us. So I want to read it for you. He, he writes this. I do not believe the innocent spouse can be compelled, for example, under the threat of church discipline. I, I would add to this as well the threat of just church pressure, peer pressure. Cannot be compelled to ex or can be compelled not to exercise the right of to divorce on the grounds of adultery, even if the adulterer claims to be repentant. 
wronged spouses who refuse to fully reconcile, restore the marriage, usually act this way because they're not convinced that the repentance is genuine. For example, it's happened on multiple occasions. In addition, the sin might have been so serious, rape or molesting a child, that they do not wish to pursue reconciliation. Or they may have decided that they no longer wish to remain married to a person who has callously broken the covenant or to live with the consequences of the sin for example, a sexually transmitted disease. Sometimes forgiven sin still has consequences, and that consequence could be the end of a marriage. If it is permissible, it must be permissible, both in terms of church discipline and church community and culture. Lest you think this guy, Neuheiser, is just soft, I want to Read to you from someone who is absolutely not soft. This is Martin Luther commenting on this exception clause in Matthew's gospel. He says this, No one should be compelled to take back a public prostitute or an adulterer if he does not want to do so or is so disgusted that he cannot do so. We read in Matthew 1.19 that although Joseph was a pious man, a righteous man actually, he was not willing to take Mary, his betrothed wife, when he saw that she was pregnant and he's praised for being resolved to divorce her quietly. If we're to be a community of grace... And truth, we must recognize this openly and be prepared to embrace and to love people who land on both sides. There are, let's be honest, there are couples in our church who have opted after infidelity to be together to represent the gospel of forgiveness and mercy and steadfast love and scandalous kindness. And we praise God and rejoice in the image of the gospel and the grace that we see in your lives. There are other couples who have decided to go a different route and where there have been permissible grounds for divorce have pursued it. Some have been remarried, some have remained single. And we thank God that they are committed to subjecting their lives to obedience to God's word. And we believe what they have done is right and good in the eyes of God who cares about truth. This is not wrong. It is especially not wrong when it comes from a place of conviction, of faith, a desire to obey Jesus as king. Which leads to the last heading, these last few verses here. Jesus wants to highlight for us that this really, for all of us, whatever decisions we make in response to this teaching is a high calling. Marriage, divorce, celibacy, singleness, for the sake of the kingdom, this is a high calling. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They make a ball and chain joke. It's funny how little men's humor has changed in the past 2,000 years man, if I can't get out of this thing, I better just not marry her, right? Am I right, guys? It's like, it's ridiculous. Jesus, though, he turns it around to a serious conversation, verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, hey, guys, you actually are speaking better than you know. But the problem is, you might not be able to receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who've been so from birth, and by the way, they live full and meaningful lives, And there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men, 
you know, if, if you're old enough to know what eunuchs are, I don't have to explain it. If you're not, you should probably talk to your parents rather than to me. So what I'm just going to say is there are people who had to have things sacrificed, meaningful things sacrificed in their life so that they could serve in the court of a king. If those kingdoms are worthy of that kind of sacrifice, how much more the kingdom of Jesus Christ? There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, Jesus says, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdoms of earth have eunuchs, how much more so than the kingdoms of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. The disciples make a joke. Jesus makes a serious proposition. There's there's a couple differences between the eunuchs of the world and the eunuchs of the kingdom. The one I hope you understand already is that this is metaphorical. Jesus is not actually talking about making yourself a eunuch. He is talking about singleness and celibacy. Rather than being married and having children, the fact that you could live a meaningful, purposeful, deliberate single life for the sake of the kingdom. It is metaphorical. But secondly, it's also different in this. It is your decision. Did you pick up on that? There are those who have been made eunuchs They've they've been made eunuchs by men. Other people did that to them. But in the kingdom of heaven, there are those who make themselves eunuchs. This is an exertion of the will. It is a conscious decision. I'm going to live this way for the sake of the advance of the gospel, the spread of the kingdom on this earth. Now, please understand, this is profoundly countercultural, both in Jesus' day and ours. So if you are single you probably at some point in your life have experienced this reality where someone says to you, hey, you know, you know, and all of a sudden the pressure starts to come about when are you going to be married? Where's the right guy? Where's the right girl? If you're married and you don't yet have kids, you understand this reality as well. The would-be grandparents start to imply things. They start to make jokes. They start to raise subjects. They want something from you. They want grandchildren. There is all kinds of pressure in our culture, even more in Jesus' day. Jesus, his people had inherited the promises to Abraham. Their descendants were supposed to be as many as the stars and the sand in the desert. The the fruit of this covenant is supposed to be that they would be fruitful and multiply, that the Israelite people, the nation, would multiply in numbers. This was a covenantal obligation, not merely cultural convenience, that they are supposed to be married and have children. But what Jesus does is radical and says, now for the sake of the kingdom of heaven... Let's understand this. The number of people who are offspring of Abraham will increase not by procreation, but by proselytization. He's saying if you're going to be single, don't be an idiot and do it because you think marriage sounds hard. Do it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. which is worth sacrificing everything to gain. This is a high calling to live for the kingdom of heaven with everything that you have. 
But, but to be clear, I think this high calling applies not simply to those who are called to be single and celibate, but to those who are called to be married as well. In other words, if you are single, do so with gospel intentionality. If you are married, you are going to be called on to forgive and to be reconciled or to make hard decisions about divorce. Don't make those decisions based on personal preference or feelings, but do it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Do it by conviction. Do it to show the world that the gospel message, the Savior, the King, is greater than sexual fulfillment. He's greater than children. He's, he's greater than some kind of existential quest to find the one who fulfills you. He is greater than all of these things. Make your decisions to display the greatness of the King and the glory of the kingdom rather than your personal convenience. For those who follow Jesus, there is healing to be had. Jesus wants to address every part of us from the way that we think to the way that we feel to what we long for so that our impulses are our Savior's impulses. But the reality is that we live still in a fallen world. And until the day comes when Jesus returns, when no more sandbags are needed and no more sin clutters our world, we are called to a hard calling with hard decisions, but a kingdom that is worth living for. So may we do it for his glory. Let's pray.